And now let's turn our Bibles to Psalm 62, where we find ourselves in our study of God's Word in Book 2 of the Psalter. Five books make up the big book of the Bible that we call the Book of Psalms. And this Sunday, we find ourselves at Psalm 62. It might be an oversimplification, but I think that in general, if there's hard things about studying and preaching the Bible, I'd say that first there's the difficulty of understanding. Sometimes there's passages that are just really difficult to understand for various reasons. And then there's a second kind of difficulty, the difficulty of application, a hard word, one that hits close to home, one that penetrates the heart. It's not hard to understand. It's hard to do. Psalm 62, we find ourselves in that second category of God's word. It's not going to be hard to understand what Psalm 62 is saying. It will be, I think, especially difficult for many of us to actually learn and apply its wisdom. It may confront some of our presuppositions. It may really turn to task the day-to-day things you do with your time, your money, your relationships. And so, let's read God's Word, and let's try our best, by the grace of God, by the power of the Spirit, to not just be a hearer, oh, I got it, but one who does what Psalm 62 is commending. Would you follow along? I'm going to read to the choir master. According to Jeduthun, a psalm of David. For God alone my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. How long will all of you attack a man to batter him like a leaning wall, a tottering fence? They only plan to thrust him down from his high position. They take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse, Selah. For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence. For my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory, my mighty rock, my refuge is God. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Selah. Those of low estate are but a breath. Those of high estate are a delusion. In the balances they go up, they are together lighter than a breath. Put no trust in extortion. Set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart on them. Once God has spoken, twice have I heard this, that power belongs to God. And that to you, O Lord, Belong steadfast love, for you will render to a man 
according to his work. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers, the flowers fade, but God's word endures forever. Amen? Psalm 62 is glorious, is it not? So clear, so simple. Big idea. In fact, here's my outline. One simple big idea, two pictures of a practice, two kinds of practices actually, two pictures of two practices that are girded by three gospel truths. One very simple big idea, two pictures that depict two practices of the Christian life that are girded, empowered by three gospel truths. The big idea is simple. God is our only hope. Trust in him at all times. It's simple, isn't it? Did you get that reading through Psalm 62? I mean, you could say it in a different way. But more or less, Psalm 62 is urging the people of God. Look specifically at verse 8. From personal life of David, a psalm of David, he's talking in the first person, but then we get plural corporate context in verse 8. Oh, people, all of you can trust in him all the time. So pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Not just for David, not just for the king, for every person that's a citizen of his kingdom God is your only hope. So trust in him, O peoples, at all times, every circumstance, every situation. Learn the secret of trusting and being content, whatever's going on. How do you do that? Well, that's what point two will get to. But before we get too ahead of ourselves, let's, let's linger on this big idea from Psalm 62. Let's not be in a hurry. Who and when does David trust? Who? God. When? All the time. That's the big idea. He only trusts in God. But there's a contrast in Psalm 62 between trust and the wisdom and the weight of the glory of God and the light, fluffy ways and wisdom of the world. I want you to see that for unpacking this idea. Only, 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 only. It's actually six times in the Hebrew that you will see the word that's translated only. God. Only trust God. He alone is salvation, glory, a mighty rock, a refuge. The word glory is especially important for our psalm today. Kavod, in Hebrew, it means weighty, heavy. He is my weightiness, as in weight meaning value or significance. Did you notice in our psalm that there are the balances that go up in verse 9? In the balances, they go up. So we're talking about a scale of what's weighty, what's valuable, what's significant. And so that's what a scale does. How much is this gold worth, for example, in the ancient world when they didn't have a, as much monetary system as you and I are familiar with? What's, what's the weight? But what's he comparing in verse 9? 
people with God. Those of low estate are but a breath. Those of high estate are a delusion. In the balances, they go up, and they are together lighter than a breath. The poetic imagery of the Psalms is glorious, isn't it? All of the wisdom of the world could be put in the scale and be found wanting. It's lighter than a breath. It's got a weight to it. It's got a significance. But when you compare it to the glory of the wisdom of the supreme creator God, it's nothing. In comparison. That's the contrast. The weightiness of the mighty rock versus the breath-like vapor and vanity of the world and mankind. There's various ways to translate this verse, verse 9, those of low estate, those of high estate. I think that in general, it's trying to basically say humans. And the ESV is trying to say that whether you are insignificant and of little value to the world, or you're, you're hot stuff, you're a big deal, you're educated, you're wealthy, you're powerful, you're a king, you're a ruler. It doesn't matter who you are, low estate, high estate, in the scale of God's weight, it's hard to even call it a breath. So I want you to think about this big idea. Does it pierce? Does it hit home? That all of the wisdom of the world is fleeting, empty, hollow, when it's compared to the heaviness of God and his word. What might be some evidences that you and I are putting our trust in human wisdom, worldly ways? Well, when God's word feels light, but the latest research on brain science feels weighty, When the investment in the relationships of a local church is a small, minuscule priority for your time and your energy, but checking off all the boxes of your job, your hobbies, your extracurricular activities, parenting your kids so that they can make sure that the top colleges will say, oh, they're well-rounded, that feels more significant to you than investing deeply in the local church. That's an example. How about when the compliments and opinions of your peers affect your soul more than the message of the gospel of God's love for you? How many of us are dealing with the baggage of a word that was spoken to us by a human? The breath of a human. And you're carrying that around and it is shaping what you do every day. But then the almighty God says, I love you, I love you, I love you. It's light. I don't know. I don't really believe it. But when mom or dad said, you're nothing, you'll never amount to something. When your best friend betrayed you and said, I hate you, those words seared and they live as permanent scars. How many decisions 
do we make in the little moments of every day where we're calculating about the fear of what someone might say versus caring more about what God thinks? Little things. How many of us did that this morning when we were getting ready for church? That we care more about our external appearance and making sure we look just right than the internal attitude and the beauty of our heart. Is it more common for us to spend more time putting on makeup or getting dressed or shopping to be up with the latest to spend money and time on these things and less about anything that would change our soul? Our wardrobe, our speech. Verse 10 says, our money, doesn't it? Verse 10, put no trust in extortion. Set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart on them. I love that it said that last line, not just the set your heart on them part, but that your riches might increase from just good hard work. You deserve a good paycheck. Praise God. You got a raise this year. I'm like genuinely happy for you. Praise the Lord. Don't put your hope in them. Some of us, though, are cheating on our taxes, cutting corners at work, extortion, theft. We believe that there will be greater security, comfort, hope found in money, that we will do things that we should not do, that are clear violations of God's word. Because money is our God, and it's not God. God only is my rock. No money is. And you know because of the extortion. You know because you're not being honest on your taxes. You know because you lied in the workplace to get ahead and get that promotion. Not honest hard work. Your heart doesn't really believe that God alone is your security, your hope. It hits hard, doesn't it? This isn't just like ethereal, pie-in-the-sky stuff that we're talking at church. This is your, your wallet. This is your time. What you're going to do the rest of the week will be a window into your trust in God alone or revealing of God plus. All throughout the Old Testament, this is a huge issue. In fact, it's the first of the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. So the people of Israel, they settle into the land. And what do they do? They do what's called syncretism. They say, we still worship Yahweh, but the rain god over here, the god of the heavens, Marduk, the Baal, Dagon, can't we get a little bit of what they've got too? And so it's God plus. It's Yahweh plus. And Psalm 62 is an emphatic declaration that says, no, God alone, no other gods. Not Yahweh plus Baal, Yahweh plus Marduk, Yahweh plus Dagon. Or fast forward to the New Testament. It's not Jesus plus the teachings of Buddha, Jesus plus Joseph Smith, Jesus plus the prophet Muhammad, Jesus plus Confucius. Jesus alone saves. Jesus alone is your rock. Jesus alone is your refuge, your fortress. 
This is fundamental, friends. This isn't hard to understand. This is basic. Commandment number one. If you're catechizing a kid, you've probably gone over the basics of God alone is our hope. But time and time again, we are syncretists. We want to bring our lovers into the marriage and say, can't we all just be happy family? Any of you married friends that have been proposed to, could you imagine that picture? Guy gets down on one knee. Will you marry me and can I bring these three girlfriends of mine? We all be one happy family? Ladies, I hope this is not a newsflash. Say no to that proposal. That's a horrible proposal. The God of the universe, though. He's depicted as a husband. He gets down on one knee and he says, I am a jealous God. I want you and me to be exclusive. Just you, just me. Let's do this without any of the other lovers. Brothers and sisters, this is a great psalm for us to examine our hearts in community about our money, our time, our priorities, our values, and ask ourselves, is it true of us? God alone is our hope. I don't know if I'm the only one. I'm not a huge Star Wars lover, but man, all week I've been, Obi-Wan Kenobi, you're my only hope. Except here it should be, Jesus Christ, you are my only hope. That's the cry of Psalm 62. You're my only hope. That's the big idea. Do we got it? I mean, we got it here. But do we got it here in the heart, in the practice of life? Ah, that brings us to point two. This psalm does not just tell us what David was hoping in, more specifically who, God alone, or when, all the time. This psalm, I think, uniquely gives us a timely word of wisdom about how. How David became the man who hopes only in God. And these two pictures of two practices I hope you will take very seriously, like weighty. Not because they're coming from Pastor Phil, but because I am going to hopefully show you this is what Psalm 62 is recommending in the life of David. First picture, an empty cup. Second picture, a silent, dead corpse buried in the grave. Two pictures, two practices. I want you to see that in our passage, the first picture is in verse 8. Trust in him at all times, O people. And then here's the image. And it uses the language of pouring out an offering. And this offering, this libation offering, the technical term would be is where you take an offering and you pour every last bit out on the altar. Pour out, but not an offering, pour out. So this poetry, the way he's using words here, it's beautiful. Pour out your soul, your heart before God. Picture number one, practice number one. Pour out like a cup everything in your soul to the Lord. I don't want to 
discourage you from reaching out to me for pastoral counseling. But I wondered this week, if we did this first practice, how many fewer phone calls I might get. I wonder how many marriages, depressive states, anxiety, struggles with sin, are in part, not all, there's all kinds of things going on, but in part, a failure to pour out all that's on one's soul to the Lord first and foremost. Pastor, Phil is not my hope. The elders of embassy are not my hope. The Lord may use us, and hopefully he uses even this teaching to help you see he is your hope. So pour out every little thing in your heart to the Lord. All of it. Every sin that you can think of. Every longing, every lament, every struggle, every doubt. Pour out your soul to the Lord. And then you can call me. I do want to meet with you all. Hopefully many of you know that very, very well. But do you get the point? How many of us call and phone the friend or the pastor before they call upon the Lord? And I think we need a fresh reminder that David is spent. And in fact, I wonder if Psalm 62 is where it is, because if you've been tracking along in this sermon series, he has been pouring out his heart again and again and again in every trial, at every time, in every circumstance, and he is poured out. And so when we get to Psalm 62, he just says, I'll wait. Picture number two. The word used for silence is also used to talk about somebody lying dead in the ground. Isn't that a great picture of silence? Like you have no ability to make any noise when you're dead. Talk about the extreme kind of metaphor for silence and waiting. Dead. No words. And I believe that the pictures, even though in the psalm they're in opposite order, I believe that David would encourage us to see picture number one. After one has poured out everything, there's nothing left to say. That's what the silence is about. It's not silence in juxtaposition or in opposite to prayer and pouring out one's soul. He's encouraging pouring out one's soul. He's been doing it all through the Psalms. He's writing a, a psalm. So it's not about there's not an appropriate time to say or speak. There certainly is. But I guarantee each of you know in little ways and in big ways that there are times I just don't know what else to say. I don't know what else to do. And then you're told this very awkward, uncomfortable word from your pastor when you call him. There's nothing else to do. You just have to wait. But what if I try this? No, you probably shouldn't do that. That's your panic, your worrying heart, trying to fret and try and convince God to do something instead of just waiting. Sometimes when you're parenting, you can say everything that needs to be said. You've prayed, you've prayed, you've prayed, you've said, you've prayed, you've said, you've prayed, and you just have to let them be a kid and wait to watch God work. My favorite story in my marriage where this has actually worked was when my wife said, 
that she is so frustrated sometimes about how she'll, as best as she can, encourage me to fix a certain thing that's bothering her. And I don't listen to her too often. And I'm stubborn. And then she said this one time, she realized in her growing maturity and wisdom, because she is mature and wise, that she just prayed and waited. And then I came to her one day and I said, hey, I was thinking about this because I was listening to this book and they were encouraging these things. She's like, you know how long I've been praying for you to finally get around to see that that's what you need to see. And there was a little bit of her confessing that like, why is it that you'll listen to that book over there and not me? We're talking real life, friends. This is my marriage. I'm being vulnerable because David is telling us, pour out your heart. And when you do so, just wait and trust. And how many of us are trying to fix our spouses, our children, our roommate, our parents? And maybe, not always, but maybe you've already done enough. You've said enough. You've prayed enough. This is hard. Who likes waiting around here? Do you know that back in the day, some of you that are under the age of 30, back in the day we would stand in grocery lines and just have to wait. We, we, we didn't have the entire infinity of the world in our pocket to scroll through what's happening. We, we would just wait till it was our turn. Do you ever notice how crazy, noisy, and busy our world is, as if it is, as C.S. Lewis says in the Screw Tape Letters, the strategy of the demonic powers to make it noisy so that you can't wait in silence. I just wonder if one of the reasons that we struggle is because we don't know silence. And I will be the first to admit, as your pastor, this word hit hard. I want to be a doer and be busy, and I want to raise five kids, and be a faithful husband, and be a pastor, and I'm trying to finish schoolwork, and I'm trying to do this and that, and then this week I had this idea, oh, let's write 25 devotionals on top of all of these things for the church. I want to be an industrious, working kind of person, and at the expense of learning what is a practice definitely of Jesus, which was to go away in silence and in solitude and meet with the Lord. Pray for your pastor in all sincerity. Pray that this would be an area of strength in the coming years and not an area of weakness. I believe that silence in and of itself is not really a Christian practice that's like, oh, that's what we're all missing in America. It's that it is the first step into all the other practices. If you don't know how to get alone and be silent and quiet, you're going to have a hard time meditating deeply on anything from the Bible. Prayer is going to be extremely difficult if we don't have the practice of waiting in silence. And those are just the two basics, word and prayer. And we could go on about the way that we give of our time and our money and all the other practices the Christian life. Silence is kind of like a presumed assumption. In our passage, look at verse 1, where David states, for God alone my soul waits in silence. 
from him comes my salvation. And then look at verse 5 where it repeats, for God alone, O my soul. And then now it's in the imperative command, wait, soul. David states in verse 1, this is what my soul is like, a dead corpse silently still and waiting. And then it's as if time has passed or he's assuming that he will forget or that he will get busy. And then he tells himself, self-talk, soul, David, for me, Pastor Phil, wait in silence. I believe these two pictures of pouring out the cup of one's soul and then silently waiting upon the timing of God is just fundamental to us getting the big idea. God alone is our hope. Trust him at all times. The greatest salvation event in the Old Testament before David wrote this psalm in Psalm 62, the greatest salvation event, the thing that God did was in Exodus chapter 14 when he delivered God's people out of slavery from Egypt. They crossed through the waters and then he crushed the Pharaoh. But this week I was rereading that story in chapter 14. And it says that Pharaoh and his army, they're coming and they're trapped. God's people are by the water of the Red Sea. And as they're there, they're like, what are we going to do? And then they all turn to Moses and be like, Moses, what's your deal, man? We might as well just go die in Egypt. Why do we die out here in the middle of nowhere? They're all complaining and wondering. And then the Lord through Moses says, tell those people to be silent. Would you wait? I'm about to do something. I'm going to do something really big. Something that you cannot do. Something that will bring about your salvation. And so they wait. And Moses lifts up his rod in his hand, and God miraculously saves. Brothers and sisters, that little story is a good segue and warms you up to the idea that the way for you to wait will be based off of you knowing the gospel. And I believe our psalm gives us three truths of the gospel, but in summary, in short little pithy way to understand it, the gospel is a message that there are things that God alone has to do that you can't do. And you need him to do it. So don't try to be frivolously wasting your energy. Patiently, calmly wait. So... We've seen a simple big idea, two pictures of two practices, third and finally, most importantly, three truths of the gospel. Why does David trust and hope only and exclusively in God alone? And another way to ask the question is, well, who else should he trust? Especially in light of what he said about all that humanity has to offer. They weigh like a breath. But then there's God, the mighty rock. But look at verses 11 and 12. As the psalm concludes, I think we get our three gospel truths. Verse 11, once God has spoken, twice have I heard this. Gospel truth number one, power belongs to God. Gospel truth number two, that you, O Lord, 
belong steadfast love. Gospel truth number three, for you will render to a man according to his work. I love the way he begins in verse 11. Once God has spoken, twice have I heard this. This is an idiomatic Hebrew expression of, if I've heard it once, I've heard it a thousand times. Meaning, you should preach the gospel into your heart again and again and every Sunday. So I'm going to do that for us. The gospel is first the power of God unto salvation. The power of God to save a heart that is dead in the grave. You and I were born into this world in such a way that our hearts were not warm and friendly toward God. We were enemies with God and we did not want him. We wanted to do our own way. We wanted to trust our own wisdom over God's word. And because of that, we lived in a state of continual separation that is described in the book of Ephesians as dead in our trespasses and sins. And we're not silently waiting for the Lord to rescue us. We are running toward judgment and hell in our sin. But God in his kindness and mercy and grace, powerfully, through his cross, through his resurrection, and through the outpouring of the Spirit when he ascended to heaven, he takes dead hearts. And the same power that raised Jesus from the dead can raise you to newness of life. That's the power that belongs to God alone. You can't change your heart to trust God. You can't. You can pour out your heart and say, God, I want to trust you. And then you can wait. And then you can do it again because as our psalm says, once and then twice, and if not a thousand times, we keep turning to the Lord and we don't let go like the rope. I'm just going to keep holding. Hold. How much longer? Keep holding. Don't let go. Heaven and hell and all of life depends on you to hold on to the promise that he does powerfully work in our lives. The power belongs to God. It is a power that is resurrection power. A power that looks like at Christmas time, silence. As a baby sleeps in a manger. Throughout this Advent season, I hope that you will meditate on that the power of God's infinite might is being put on display in the first coming of Jesus when he lies as an infant in the manger. That's the power of God. There is no worldly power that looks like an infant in the womb. The virgin birth, as we saw in our daily devotional that was read for us downstairs, it comes from the outside. It cannot come from humanity here on this earth. The Spirit of God is the one that brought about this baby in the manger. I have a confession. I have regularly pointed out that I think away in the manger is way too sentimental, and I've not loved it. We've hardly ever sung it as a church. But this week, I was thinking about the line, the cattle are lowing, the baby awakes, but the little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. And part of me is like scoffing at that line and saying, really? Jesus never cried. Surely he cried. He was a human just like all of us. But I quote that song lyric to point to the infinite might of the mighty God being in a still, quiet baby. There is something sweet and sentimental about it, but there's also something profoundly powerful about the God 
of the universe becoming a man and living a perfect life and then dying a death on our cross. And as 1 Peter 2 tells us, he did that in silence. As he was wrongly accused, he said nothing. Can you think of a greater power, very practically, than somebody being repeatedly falsely accused and saying nothing in return? I wonder how many of us in our day-to-day lives, from a coworker, a boss, a marriage partner, needs the power of Jesus by the Holy Spirit to make you able to hear a biting criticism and say nothing back. And if you do, you're self-controlled in your speech. That's power. The power alone that belongs to the incarnate Son of God and that because of that power, he was crucified on a cross and we know that he poured out his soul even as he hung on the cross. He gave up his spirit. He says the Psalms as he dies. Jesus did these practices and he did them for you when you and I don't even have the strength or the wisdom or the maturity to do them. And on the basis of his substitutionary death on the cross, there is power in his blood, power in his gospel being applied to you. If at any moment in this sermon you have felt the sting of conviction, yeah, that's definitely true of me, Pastor Phil. I am Jesus plus Do you also know that there is a gospel that speaks a better word, a more powerful, more amazing word than the condemnation of you failed? Will you hold that weighty today? There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Power. And that power alone belongs to God. Second, love Mercy, grace, chesed, love. Look at Psalm 62, verse 12. And that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love. I've heard it once, I've heard it twice. God, you have power and you have love. Now imagine if the God of the universe only had power but no love. Or all love but no power. If he didn't have the power to take away your sin, he could want to, but he didn't have the power to do it. But what if he had the power to take away your sin, but he didn't have the love to do it? Praise be to God. Psalm 62 says he has the power and he has the love, and we know it because God demonstrated his love by sending Jesus into the world. Amen? Both gospel truths are equally true then in Psalm 62 as they are today 2022. Brothers and sisters, receive the gospel today afresh. Hear it once, hear it a thousand times. The God of the Bible is supremely powerful, powerful over sin, powerful over Satan, powerful over the grave, and when your soul lies dead in the ground, because of his great love, in the same way that he raised Jesus from the dead, you too can wait in your dead, literal dead silence when you die for him to raise you because he loves you. It was for the joy and the love set before him that he endured such shame on the cross and remained silent. 
Gospel truth number three. Who else has the power and the love and the justice than the God of the Bible? The last little line says, he will render to man according to his works. This is just a short little way to summarize that God is just. You will be judged. You'll be judged on the basis, fairly and rightly, of what you have done. And so, how are you doing? First commandment, let's start there. Have no other gods before me. Jesus alone, no other idols, no other allegiances. Not the Republican or Democratic Party. Christ as King alone. How are we doing, friends? The hard reality is we're not doing very well as sinners in this world, more broadly speaking. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus Christ did all that we should have done, and he did it perfectly. So you have before you, because of the gospel, two options. You can let Jesus be judged according to his perfect, righteous record of good works. And receive that as, I'm, I'm, I'm with him. We're together in this. Like when you get married and you say yes to the marriage proposal, you now have joint bank accounts. I want that bank account, uh-huh, me and him. Or you can say, I'll, I'll just, I'll stand before the judge on my own. I don't need Jesus' righteous record accredited to me. On that day, you will be found bankrupt. So I plead with each and every one of you to, for either the first time or the thousandth time, receive the perfect righteousness of Jesus because you will be judged based on good works. Either the finished good work of Jesus Christ, all that he did to live his perfect life on our behalf, as our substitute, as our marriage partner, I want that one. Or you're all on your own. And isn't it beautiful, powerful, and amazing that the God of the Bible doesn't bow down on one knee and say, will you marry me? And allow us to bring our lovers with him? Isn't it amazing that he gets down on one knee and says, will you marry me? And does not force you but allows you to choose now, lovingly, I want him. I think it's amazing. I think that's the gospel. God gives you the opportunity to say, that is my Lord and Savior, God only, my rock, my salvation, my fortress, my glory. That's why Christmas exists. And this Advent season my hope and prayer is that God alone, in the person of Jesus alone, will be our hope, our only hope. Let's close in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, in the name of your Son, Jesus, and him alone as our high priest and mediator, do we come and bow before you and pour out our hearts again. We need you, Father. There is not one thing on this earth that we need more than we need you. And we praise 
you, God, for the way that you have provided all that we've needed, and then much more. We want to ask that each of us here would rightly receive the word of correction that your word brings in Psalm 62, and at the same time, the healing balm and the power of the Holy Spirit and the reminder of the gospel. Father God, I pray that as we walk with you, we will have two strong legs. A leg that walks with the strength of your word and the wisdom of your word, the weightiness of your word that drives deep into the crevices of our heart and exposes the false gods and lovers and that we would care rightly about holiness and sin as a church and help each other because we love each other too much to live in syncretism. May that be one way that we walk, but may there also be the second leg that when we walk with you, we would have a strong message of grace and of love and of freedom and of deliverance and that we would learn well how to both rightly and lovingly rebuke one another and rightly and lovingly comfort one another with the truth of the gospel. God, I'm praying earnestly now, pouring out my heart before you that you would make Embassy Church that kind of church, that kind of community, that we would preach these kind of sermons on a regular basis, that the thunder of your law would pierce and convict down to the very crevice of bone and marrow, joint, soul and spirit, and that the loving hands of your warm embrace would heal and redeem and restore. Break us down and then build us up stronger. Break our bones and then as they heal, may they be so much stronger. Oh, Father, we pray that this would be true of each of us who are members of this church, but we also want to pray for those that are either here in this room or outside of these walls that are lost and putting their hope in breath, vanity, emptiness. May we give them the hope of the gospel this December. In Jesus' name. Amen.